Isaiah, the seventh chapter. And if you'd like to follow along, it's printed on the back of your bulletin announcements. In preparation to hear these words, let us turn our hearts in prayer. Holy God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning, that we might hear your word for us this day. Amen. Again, God spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals, that you weary my God also? Therefore God will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and she'll bear a son, and she'll name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Good morning. Oh, Advent. Isn't it a weird thing to start the liturgical way, liturgical year this way? Advent is the season of the darkest part of the year. Our liturgical colors are the blues and purples of the night sky. Remember back on the first Sunday of the season when the readings told us to be awake, be aware of what comes to us in the darkness. I think it makes sense this way. Advent is the season in which we discover who we are as we journey toward Bethlehem. That trip to Bethlehem is a pilgrim's journey, a transformative journey of companions in which pilgrims are surprised by the unexpected revelations of the trip, especially what we discover when things aren't necessarily clear, when we're in the dark. It's a season of the unexpected and specifically what we discover about who we are as disciples. My question to you on this last Sunday of Advent is this. What have you heard in the dark? I'm convinced that sometimes what comes to us in the darkness is revelatory, perhaps, of our truer selves, reactions that reveal who we are. And that's what we can take into the light with us, or perhaps lay at the feet of the baby in the manger. I want to suggest that this season of darkness is marked by our invitation to four virtues, to freedom, to compassion, to trust, to justice. These are the virtues that mark us as pilgrims in the dark. Freedom. I remember my first day in prison. I'd been invited to volunteer at MCI Framingham, which is the only women's state prison in Massachusetts. Whatever your particular offense is, from kiting checks to first-degree murder, you go to Framingham. I was a little nervous. I'd never been in a prison before, but I'd seen some on TV. 
Framingham's buildings are new and old mixed, you can still see the tiny windowless cells where more than 100 years ago, women could be imprisoned indefinitely for bad housekeeping or for drinking in public. These days, women are imprisoned not only for their own offenses, but for those of others. A partner dealing drugs from the house can tear a mother from her children whether or not she knew what was going on. The social offenses related to addiction are the contemporary version of locking women up for drinking in public. Our chapel was a repurposed gym in an older part of the building. Brick walls, scuffed wood floors, and windows barred with wire mesh to keep people from jumping from three stories up. The women were welcoming and friendly, ranging from the young, brash, and tough to grandmothers eager to show me photos of their grandkids as they wept from being away from them. Less than an hour inside, I already had a sense of how relentlessly this environment must grind on the soul. How the routine degradations of the place, like being counted and searched, like being reduced to the crime you've committed. The agonies of family separation, drug and alcohol withdrawal, untreated or overtreated mental illness, danger from other inmates and staff. All these must contribute, I thought, to a sense that most of these women must have of hanging on tenuously to safety, to humanity, to life itself. But what I will never forget came in the prayers of the faithful. In that dark place, the women revealed their true selves. I knew what I would be praying for if I lived there. I would be praying for myself. But not these women. They prayed for the world. Stuck in an ugly brick gym in a place designed to punish and humiliate. Their prayers stretched across the world for victims of war and natural disasters, for wisdom in world affairs, for migrants, for the sick, and yes, for their families, for each other inside and for themselves, for the whole world. Their spirits were as free in that moment as the spirit herself moving all over the world. Make no mistake, prison can surely destroy those trapped there. Too often prisons do destroy the people inside them, physically, psychologically, or spiritually. But I'd seen in that moment these women who, I hoped, could teach me how to pray with fierce freedom like they did. They spoke love to the world from the darkness. That's who they were. Their true, free selves. Compassion. In today's gospel, we find Joseph literally in the dark, tossing and turning in his sleep. He's got reason to be upset. Mary is pregnant and the baby isn't his. I imagine he feels angry, hurt, and betrayed for starters. At the time, he and Mary were betrothed, so not officially married, but still committed. That's why the text says he'd have to divorce her, not just break up, and why it speaks of, her as, uh, of him as her husband. 
His decision to divorce her quietly can't turn out well. Either he will look like a jerk for divorcing a woman carrying what people will assume is his child, or if it comes out that he is not the dad, well, then Mary is liable to severe punishment for being a woman who broke the rules. While no one got too upset in that time if betrothed women became pregnant, adultery is a stoning offense. At the very least, disgrace lies either way. So Joseph tosses and turns. What did Joseph hear in the dark? An angel talking to Joseph in a dream gives him an out. With a deft quotation of scripture, more on that in a minute, Joseph is told that the child is God's. Now, people don't always listen to dreams. People shouldn't always listen to dreams. <laughs> a lot of us have had that dream where you're naked in public and we don't usually take that as inspiration. <laughs> but Joseph's dream is a way for him to reveal the kind of person he is. In a dark place, he opts for compassion instead of the law. That compassion has a cost. His compassion will soon put him on the run when he has to flee with his wife and child before the death squads that Herod sends can catch them. Trust. Our first reading also shows how being in a dark place can reveal character, but in this case, it's not such good news. Here's some ancient Middle Eastern political turmoil. Stay with me now. Ahaz is the king of Judah. And he is being pressured by Syria and Israel, who want to force Ahaz to join them in a coalition against Assyria. Just think of Assyria as the evil empire. They were the most effective military conquering force of the time. They didn't destroy their enemies, they assimilated them. Everybody became Assyrian and their own cultures evaporated. So Ahaz feels threatened by Syria and Israel and thinks, against the prophet Isaiah's better advice, that linking up with the evil Assyrian empire is a good idea. Go figure. So, through Isaiah, God tells Ahaz not to worry. There's no real threat from Syria and Israel, and there's no need to align with Assyria. Ahaz is stuck in a dark place, attacked by nations trying to force him into alliance. Instead, he did decide to ally with the evil Assyrians. Spoiler alert, it won't end well. <laughs> Ahaz winds up paying allegiance to Assyrian gods, and he put Assyrian god statues up in the temple in Jerusalem. But for now, Isaiah is trying to convince Ahaz to trust in God's promise. Ahaz is told to ask for a sign, and Ahaz cannot. His mind is made up. He cannot trust God more than he trusts Assyria. So, who's this Emmanuel in the Isaiah reading? Okay, 
bracket. I'm a theologian. We have to do a little theological geekery. This is a little detour, perhaps an unexpected side trip. Stay with me just for a sec. Commentators point out that when Isaiah says, the young woman is with child and bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, the term doesn't refer to a virgin or just some random young woman, but probably one of Ahaz's wives. She will bear a son, and he'll be Emmanuel, God is with us, because his survival shows that Ahaz's kingdom of Judah survives, that God was worth trusting. Emmanuel will be, in some ways, the anti Ahaz, because he will come to distinguish good from evil and choose good, while the rabbis of the Talmud describe Ahaz as the king who always chose evil. Matthew picks up this story in Joseph's dream and says the child will be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the proof that God is with us. In Matthew's gospel, This is the first story in the text, right after the genealogy of Jesus, in which we learn that one of Jesus' ancestors was Ahaz. Jesus, Emmanuel, shows us that God is trustworthy. This Emmanuel story is not centrally about a miracle virgin birth. It's about God sticking with his people, even when, like Ahaz, they don't trust God. End of bracket. Justice. First, an injustice. Mary does not speak at all in the Gospel of Matthew, or Mark's Gospel for that matter. Matthew's story of Jesus' birth is all about Joseph. Mary is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, then she's spoken about in the story. And in this story of Jesus' birth, oddly, um, minimally, we hear about the birth of Jesus only when Matthew tells us that Joseph didn't have sex with Mary until she'd born a son. Even the birth of Jesus is told through Joseph's eyes. The silencing of Mary is one example of the way women tend to be downplayed, disregarded, or reduced to their sexuality in Scripture. I think I know why. Beyond the patriarchal bent of scripture is the fact that Mary was a dangerously uppity woman. When we do get to hear from her in Luke's gospel, she, one, argues with an angel about how babies are made. Then she says yes to God's counterintuitive invitation. Then she speaks her Magnificat, all about how God will cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly, and that's chapter one. (laughs) Mary is a powerful social justice warrior, and I bet that's where Jesus got his priorities from. He was Emmanuel, the anti-Ahaz, in part from listening to his mother. So even though Matthew silences Mary, and focuses his Christmas story on Joseph and three foreign kings who will come to pay him homage, Luke will show us a feisty and justice-minded woman and note the poor shepherds who show up at the birth, not the rich kings. Mary, while silenced by Matthew, 
reminds us that the point of the whole point of this saying yes to God is to commit ourselves to the work of justice. What does this mean for us? First, Advent is the season when we prepare ourselves to show up in Bethlehem, when we discover in the dark who we are as disciples. After all, when Jesus sends the twelve out on mission later in this gospel in chapter 10, he tells them, what I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. The kingdom of God starts in darkness and whispers. It starts like a little bit of yeast in dough. It starts like a tiny mustard seed. As it is with the kingdom writ large, so with us and in us. So let's all ask ourselves, what have we heard in the darkness? How are we called to these Advent virtues of freedom, compassion, trust, and justice? How have we responded? How are we growing through the dark? Who are we becoming individually and together in this season in which we are pilgrims in the dark? How is Jesus coming to birth in us, just as he came to birth in Bethlehem so long ago? Because, can you feel it? Has something changed? Today is the day after the shortest day in the year. Today, the sun will set just a tad later than yesterday, and we begin our long emergence into light. And the time is drawing near for that baby to be born.